Well, let's turn our attention to the most important thing we're doing this morning, and that's the study of God's Word. We are plowing our way through, marching our way through Mark. We find ourselves in Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. So if you have a copy of God's Word, or it's on your phone, turn it on, or join me there in Mark chapter 2, 13 to 17. Uh, I want to read the text first this morning, and then we'll jump into some introductory matters uh, if you want a title, uh, if you're labeling your text, and it's okay to write in your Bibles, just so you'll know. Um, they're made to be written in. You have to have the right kind of pen to do that or it bleeds through, but it's okay to write through. I often write my titles and topics because I try to title uh, my sermons uh, that would help you understand that particular passage. But over this, a banner over this section of Mark 2, 13 to 17 I've written a scandalous grace, scandalous grace, and scandalous is in quotes. Not the scandal that we're thinking, but it became a scandal when Jesus demonstrated grace, all right? So that's the theme, that's the banner, and what I want you to take away from Mark 2, 13 to 17, scandalous grace. Let's read Mark 2, 13 to 17 to get it into our thinking, then we'll do some introduction and then we'll dive deeper into the text itself. And he went out, that's Jesus, and Jesus went out again by the seashore. And all the people were coming to him. And as you might imagine, he was teaching them. It's a pattern of Jesus. And then he went into the city again. And he passed by and he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in a tax booth. And he said to him, you've seen this before, haven't we? Follow me. And then you see the immediate response. And he got up, dropped everything, and followed him. Well, after that, it happened that they were all reclining at the table in his house. Whose house? Antecedent theirs. Levi's house. And many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many of them. It's a big crowd, quite a celebration. And they, and they were actually following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they're too chicken to talk to Jesus, they said to his disciples, Hey, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus responds, hearing this, he said to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I did not come for the righteous. I came for sinners. Scandalous grace. You have to remember when you think about the life, the totality of the life of Christ, that he didn't. He didn't run projects. He didn't establish any ministries. He didn't even put on any world-class events like T4G or the Gospel Coalition. What he did do from our study is he ate meals. He ate a lot of meals. He knew and recognized the natural opportunity that a meal creates by sitting around the table, which you're going to experience even this week with your family. The, the context that Jesus did his ministry was often lunch or dinner, a meal. For Jesus, doing lunch was doing 
evangelism, right? Food connects people together. It turns strangers into friends. And it's one of the expectations of leadership in the local church is that we, we love our neighbors. We love, we love strangers. In Luke's gospel, Jesus said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. We know why he was here. He was to do evangelism, to share the gospel. He was the gospel. And I don't know if you remember, but in Luke 7, 34, they, the statement was made. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So the Son of Man came eating and drinking. They turned it on him and said, he's eating so many meals. Every time we run into him, he's eating and drinking. They accused him of gluttony in Luke 7. They accused him of, of drunkenness. And of course, all of it was because he was hanging out with these so-called tax collectors and sinners. Robert Karras, in his commentary on Luke, says in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. As you read the gospels, you'll see that mealtime was his methodology for evangelism and sharing the gospel. So Jesus' primary mission was to seek and to save that which lost was lost. The context for that evangelism was a long meal, was lunch, some grilled fish, some carbs, right, some bread, and a bottle of wine. That was the prize context for him to do evangelism. And in the West, and particularly where we live, in the time we live right now, meals are kind of almost down to efficiency, right? I mean, we go in, we eat fast, we get out, we don't loiter at the table, and that's to our disadvantage, to be honest. One of the reasons, and one of the countries I, I love to visit and spend some time in and has spent a lot of time in is Italy. And I can recall after preaching on a Sunday morning in Italy, we'd go to dinner at someone's house. We would be at the table, and I'm not exaggerating, five hours, five and a half hours. There would be like six courses, just steadily food coming out over a long period of time, talking, fellowshipping, communicating, intimacy. It was just an amazing experience. Well, that was a part of the culture in the first century. So a long meal was a gospel opportunity. Jesus didn't build buildings. He ate meals. And that's, as you read the gospels, you'll see that is his strategy. And it begs the question of us today. Who is at your table? Who are you eating with? Who, who is coming over to your house? Are there strangers and People you don't know. Is it an opportunity? Did God put you in a certain neighborhood and gifted you with a beautiful house for you to only share that with your family? Or is it his plan to remind us that we are to eat meals? As a matter of fact, humanly speaking, Jesus got himself killed because he ate with sinners. That was the accusation. He was hanging out with the wrong crowd. He was mixing it up with the wrong people. 
He wasn't hanging out with the religious, the Pharisees and the scribes. He wasn't hanging out with the religious elite. He was actually just hanging out with people. He was doing his mission in the context of a meal. Meals are extremely important, especially as we're planting a church here in Bardstown. It, the implications of this passage on us is tremendous this morning. So we need to learn how to have a gospel meal. We, we need to learn the value. We get a window into Jesus's strategic methodology of doing evangelism around the table. And what I want to point out is what Jesus did is extremely ordinary. Most of us eat three meals a week. Or is that 21 meals, 21 evangelistic opportunities a week? Not only to evangelize your own children, which should happen at the table, but even to include others into the context at your table. So eating meals is massive. And you're seeing it here right in the text before us. It's ordinary. And a lot of the things that we do in a local church is ordinary. We call it the ordinary means of grace. There's nothing tricky here. I'm not going to surprise you this morning. Jesus ate meals. That's what he did. Therefore, we should eat meals with strangers likewise. That is the bottom line. But let me compel you from the text, not just tell you what you should be doing, but let me compel you from this text. And let's look at the three dimensions of how Jesus used ordinary meals for evangelism. His first focus and lesson for us this morning is that we are to befriend sinners. We are to be a friend of sinners. Let me remind you of the context. It's been a couple weeks since we've been in Mark. Jesus is in a section in Mark where he gets in all kinds of trouble. Why? Because he's a contrarian. He thinks outside the box. Some of you are like that. I know you. You, you think outside the box. If I say, here's the box, you're going to think outside the box. That's how Jesus thought. So the religious elite are saying, hey, you, you don't. And you'll see why it's scandalous in a second. You don't, you don't mix it up with tax collectors. That's outside the box. Well, Jesus, as you know, he's going to go outside the box. He's going to think outside the box. He's going to be a contrary. He gets himself in all kinds of trouble. And some of you have that spirit about you. You're just, if everybody's going right, you're going to go left. That's just kind of in you. You've been like that since your childhood, right? So we're in this section where Jesus on five occasions takes them outside the box, becomes a contrarian, pokes them in the eye, and gets in all kinds of trouble. We saw it the last time, two, three weeks ago. You remember that he, he, he forgives the paralytic, and then he heals his body. And they go, hey, only God forgives. And he goes, right. And they're like, but only God forgives. He goes, right. Exactly. He's God. And Jesus saves sinners. That's the gospel, right? And he does that, and they get all kinds of upset. That's the first of five. What you're looking at this morning is the second of five. So we still got three more to go in the next compelling weeks as we come, or next weeks as we move uh, through Mark. But there are five separate narratives. We're in this section here where he gets questioned by the critics and by the religious elite about his practices. Because why? He's outside the box. He's not following best practices. He's a contrarian. And so they say you should go right. And he says, no, we're going left. And let me tell you why. 
And he nails it, does he not, in verse 17? I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. Jesus came for sin-sick, Satan-serving sinners, just like you and me. This is the beauty and picture of the gospel. And so again, Jesus is in some, some trouble here. The text begins there in verse 13 of Mark chapter 2 by stating that he went out to the seashore. Two reasons, I believe. One, he wanted some fresh air. It wasn't because he wanted to feel the sand between his toes. And some of you have been to the coast or the Pacific coast. I've been following you on Facebook. So it wasn't that he wanted to get sand between his toes. That's not what this is about. He wanted to get some fresh air. He's been doing intense ministry, as you know, in the city. So he takes a little break. But also, guess who would be at the, quote, beach? People. And the way Mark transitions topics is geographically. So he went out again by the seashore. So he's going between the seashore and the city, back and forth there, either Capernaum or at the beach. There's people at the beach. It's Saturday morning. This is where they go. And he went out again to the seashore, and all the people came to him, and it's just predictable, right? And he was teaching them. He wasn't healing them. He would heal them, and he does heal them. But he always points out that he's clarifying the gospel. He's teaching them the gospel. He says it. He says it again. He says it a different way. Like a diamond, every facet of the gospel, he keeps turning it because every turn is a new vista of the gospel and a dimension of the gospel. And that's what he just, he just keeps turning the gospel, keeps teaching these people. And this time it's at the beach. It's at the seashore. Fresh air, a little change of pace. He's, it's, it's a reference to his... His, his human nature. He's 100% God. Yes, we see that, that he forgives sins in the previous text. But now you see him just at the beach. Clear in his mind. He leaves the beach. It's a transition again in verse 14. And he heads back into Capernaum. And when he gets at this crossroad in Capernaum, lo and behold, there's a booth there, a tax booth there. And he runs into this guy who is Levi, and he runs into this tax guy named Levi. And it's his opportunity to recruit another disciple. And so at this crossroads was this tax booth, and there's a guy standing there. And what he does with Levi, which is Matthew, we know from Matthew's gospel, he takes Levi, he turns him into Matthew, you and calls him to be a disciple. Now, I need you to know something about Levi. I need you to know a number of things about Levi because to see what he does with Levi is, is to be a scandal in the first century. He stuns the crowd and he calls Levi. Levi was not of their tribe. Bottom line, summary word, Levi was a thug. That's what he was. It was straight up thuggery. Extortion. He was not from the right side of the tracks. It was a scandalous pick. Now, he's already chose other disciples, James and John, the sons of thunder. And you, you saw those in, in Mark chapter 1. You see those now. This is number five of his disciples whom he's going to invest three and a half years and whom he's going to entrust the gospel. And they're going to change the whole course of the history so much so that you're sitting here on Sunday morning because of that afternoon. You're here today because of Levi and the other disciples 
who faithfully preached the gospel and passed it on generationally all the way to Bardstown right here this morning. Isn't that crazy? There's a, you could track the lineage. If we were able, you could track the lineage to this afternoon, having left the beach, gone back to Capernaum and meets Levi. He becomes a close disciple of Jesus. As a matter of fact, he has this thug write a gospel. It's called the Gospel of Matthew. And we know it's the same Levi because in Levi's account of this, he tells him that he is Matthew, he is Levi, he is the guy that was in the tax booth, right? So I think it's important that we just unpack Levi's life and so that you can appreciate why this is a scandal. Because if you're just reading this over a cup of co uh, Java on Monday morning, you're going, oh, that's cool. You know, he said, tax account, got it. I have an account. Uh, accounts are weird. Except for that movie that just came out, the account that changed accounting for everyone. But, um, but you know, they're just, okay, I, I got a category for him. You, you really don't. You really don't until you appreciate who he was. So the text says he was the son of Alphaeus of the tribe of Levi. And most of the people of the tribe of Levi were lawyers. Most of them were the nation's lawyers, right? And all these guys have two names. It was very common, so it shouldn't throw you off the trail at all. Paul was also Saul. Simon was Peter. Levi was Matthew. That shouldn't be a shock to you. Um, you typically got a new heart. You got a new name when it came to Jesus. Most important in the text, though, it says he was a tax collector. That translates into thug. He was low-life Levi. That was his nickname. He was basically a loan shark, akin to a turncoat. So what would happen was Rome needed to exact their taxes. And they would find somebody who would do their job for them. So this is a, a Jewish man who sells out to Rome to extort taxes from people. And what they would do is they'd say, okay, here's Capernaum. Who wants Capernaum? A number of leaders would come forward and they would bid for the opportunity to get the taxes from the people of Capernaum. All right? And then you would give whatever Rome said to Rome. They'd get their take. And whatever you extorted above that, you got to keep. Right? So it is given to the highest bidder. And the better you are at extorting money from people and taxing them, why, you would make more money. So you can see why in their culture, this job, and it was set up at a crossroads, there's a booth, every time you walk by, every time you went to the beach, they would hit you. It's like doing tolls and going into Chicago. It's like, it's like a robbery. I feel like every time I go to Chicago, I just stick my hands up in the air. You're like, okay, just more money. Every two miles, it's like 250. I'm like, what is happening, right? So you end up hating Chicago before you ever enter the city. So basically, it's this tax franchise that he's operating, that he's bid and won, and he's sitting in this booth. And so you can see how it was just a moral leprosy. As a matter of fact, they looked at them like lepers. That's how bad it was. That's why I'm saying he was a thug. They were not appreciated. Basically, they extorted their own, their own brotherhood. They were outcasts. They were refused access to the synagogue. They weren't even allowed in the synagogue. And they, they just... They just could not stand them because they would extort. So you can see how if you have this franchise for tax extortion, how that it could get out of hand and that it could get really immoral. 
Because you start doing shenanigans and tricking people and then there's a poll tax and then there's a grain tax and then there's a land tax and, and, uh, and you know, it's taxation without representation. I mean, you got this whole thing and you can see how revolutions have been fought because of this issue of taxation. This guy was hated. He was not popular. He was a thug. And Jesus says, the perfect kind of guy who will be converted to Jesus Christ, be changed and have a new calling and a new mission and actually change the whole world so much so that you're going to sit here in Bardstown, in Nelson County High School because of the thug Levi. Isn't that awesome? That's the power of the gospel. That's what it does. It changes people. It takes sinners and, and, and changes their, their life. And so they would set up these booths where people couldn't avoid them, you couldn't hide. And all the people of Capernaum couldn't stand Levi. He would be what I would call the most unlikely disciple, the most unlikely leader to be on Jesus' team. And so I want you to know, when he gets converted, it is a scandal. It's scandalous grace. They can't believe it. There is no way the gospel could reach this man. There's no way the power of the gospel could, could reach this guy. But we know, 1 Corinthians 1, that God actually delights in taking dysfunctional leaders, changing their heart, and calling them to themselves, and using them to present and to preach the gospel. Case in point, myself standing before you this morning. So he goes in Christ. He becomes a new creation. And so this scummy, thug, of a guy is now one of the five disciples that Jesus has chosen to propagate the kingdom, to build the kingdom, and to, and to double down with the gospel as it changes people's lives. Notice Levi's response there. Jesus says to him, follow me. Real simple, follow me. It's so powerful. The spirit is so heavy that this guy got up and followed him. Now, it costs Levi more than it costs the other guys. It is, it is costly to follow Jesus. I would never diminish that at all. But I can tell you that, that the fishermen that he called previously, like Simon and Andrew, if it didn't go bad, what would they do? Go back to fishing. They had a craft. They had a skill. This guy, he blew the bridge. I mean, he burned. This is Cortez. He burned the ships. When he walked out of that tax booth... And turned from extorting people, the whole community he lived in, to now being a leader of Jesus' team. I'm telling you, there was no going back to Rome. There was no going back to that. He left everything. It cost him everything to follow Jesus. And I love it in the text because he did it without any hesitancy. There shouldn't be hesitancy in our heart when it comes to following Jesus. And so you see that Jesus, in his strategy, was a friend to sinners like the, the scummy, thuggy kind of guy, Levi. You would have never picked Levi on your team. If you were building a team that was going to propagate the gospel and change the world, 
you get some lawyers, you, you, you go get Dr. Moeller, you, you go get all these guys, all the T4G, and you kind of laugh and say, okay, that's my five. No, fisherman and a thug. Why? Because he wants you to know it's not about you, it's about the power of the gospel. And therefore, you can have lunch and dinner, the ordinary means of grace, with sinners and strangers in your community and watch the power of the gospel work and change people's lives. So the first dimension you see there in 13 and 14 is Jesus is a friend to sinners. Therefore, we are friends of sinners. We are friends of sinners. Second dimension. He's an antagonist to the self-righteous. He's a friend of sinners. Second thing I want you to see is that he's an antagonist to the self-righteous, to the religious elite. The scene changes, does it not, in verse 15? They're back at, I believe, um, Matthew's house. Matthew has a ton of money. How do you know in the text? Size of his house. There's lots of people there. Remember, the first century houses, they don't have windows. They're small. You know, we talked about they couldn't even get to Peter's house. You had to cut a hole in the roof previously to drop a guy down because there was not enough room in the house. There were so many people. Well, here it says there's many of them. There's all kinds of tax codes. This is a celebration. So I believe what happens is Levi is so fired up. He's got a new heart. He's rejoicing in the Lord. And he says, let's eat. Let's have a party. It's a party. That's all this is. It's a celebration time, right? So he has a large home. He's probably in the upper middle class because he's extorted money. Now he's going to use his home for spiritual reasons. He gets all his tax collector buddies together and a bunch of their thugs together. It's like a thuggery party, right? This was a big deal. It was a big deal to Jesus. It was a big deal to, to Levi, and I think Levi wanted to share his testimony. I think he wanted to tell his friends what has happened. I was blind, but, but now I see, right? It's how it's supposed to be, folks. When you give your life to Christ and you're transformed, you're, you're to be so fired up ongoingly, not just one time, not just in the early season of your Christian experience, but your whole life that you're to be inviting people on a regular basis to know Jesus. And you tell people how they can know Christ, right? So Jesus goes to eat with all the social outcasts in the region. Totally unpredictable. This would have never happened. There wasn't a religious rabbi of the day that would ever show up. They showed up at the synagogue, right? They, they showed up at the synagogue. They would never show up at someone's home and do this. They totally missed the Great Commission, which, as you know, it doesn't say come and hear the gospel. It says go and make disciples. So we do this, that we gather to worship, we leave here to evangelize, right? That's the purpose of what we're doing this morning. We're, we're equipping ourselves so that we can be evangelists and we can do exactly what Levi did and invite people over and tell them what God has done in our hearts and lives. I'm telling you, this was scandalous. This would have blown people's minds. It was crazy. Now, these religious leaders, they were keeping tabs on Jesus, they were following around. Why? Because they're critical. They want to trip him up. They want to throw him off uh, his game. They want to catch him. They'd already caught him uh, forgiving sins, and that was a huge deal. Now, now he's catching them 
eating with sinners or catching Jesus eating with sinners. They're just waiting to trip him up. The grace of God, folks, welcomes sinners. What the world excludes, grace includes. We are to be about strangers. We're to rub shoulders with sinners. We're to turn strangers into gospel friends, right? And so the text says they're reclining at a table at Levi's house. Let me just, it's interesting because I think we don't eat like this, so it doesn't make sense. So some things, sometimes you read in the Bible like, why, why do they eat like They eat laying down. Now, Thanksgiving's this week. It might behoove all of us to lay down while we're eating because I know what happens after I eat Thanksgiving. I want to lay down, right? I'm like going to pass out. Football, I mean, it's just, it's just glorious. It, it, it glorifies God you know, to eat that much food and then watch football. And I'm going to do it to the glory of God this week. I'm just letting you know up front. But how they would do it, how they eat meals, think about this. So you got dirty roads, dusty feet. So they would have a meal in a center. They would sit in the round. They would lay in the round. You would lean in on your left arm. Your feet would be out. Why? Because a serpent would come by and wash everyone's feet. And so that's the way they leaned. Even in the upper room, that's what they were doing. They were washing their feet because they're dusty roads and hands. And so they would lean on one arm and you'd reach in to the center Eat with your hands, and you'd pick, you know, some baklava and some, uh, what would they eat? I don't know. Give me some things. Come on, man. Help me. Pizza. Come on. You're like the most national food foodie. All right. Forget it. You, you, that was horrible. Um, you, you get the point. So they're going to let, their feet are going to be out. They're going to have their feet out. Why? You don't want your nasty feet around the meal. So they would sit around on, on these, like, pillows, and they would lean in. And you've seen it in movies before. But that's exactly what they're doing. They're eating eating a meal together, and it would just be unheard of for a rabbi or anybody of the upper crust of religious elitism to ever do that. And Jesus is going to blow their minds. He's going to go right in there. He's going to sit in there. And the text says there's many of them in there, and there's a ton of them following. So Levi sharing his testimony. Jesus is clarifying it, coming in with the good news of the gospel. I'm here to take away the sins. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes with their eating lamb. He's talking about lamb. It's mayhem. And people are giving their lives to Christ. And the guest list was a bunch of tax collectors and sinners. An odious gathering at best in the eyes of the religious elite. Here's the deal, folks. This is so important when you see a text like this. Isolationism is not a biblical concept. We are called in Bartstown to interact with sinners. The problem is for the last 30 years, probably up until about 2000, the last 30 years, the church said... You should have Christian baseball leagues. You should do Christian bowling. We still did bowling. You should go to Christian hairdressers. You should go to Christian gyms. You should buy Christian dogs, right? Christian cattle. You know, hunt Christian deer. You do everything Christian. That's just not true. It is so. It is so bad. It was such a horrible Western concept. You should play basketball in the secular league. Your kids should go to. The public school, they should, I'm not saying you have to, that's a whole other story. But um, I just thought that was going to, that's going to cause some fuss. Um, you should go to, you know, you don't go to Starbucks because it's Christian because they got that symbol in the cup and you get weird. Go there, you know, you reach, you know, like, so 
It's isolationism and just being around Christians is not the concept. Biblically, you're to be around sinners and tax collectors. You're to rub shoulders with them so that you can share the gospel with them. So what happens is when texts like these come alive to you, then you'll turn your job into a mission field, right? You won't go, oh, I'm just having to work with this secular job. I wish I could do what they do, and, and you kind of bifurcate the secular and the sacred. Oh, no, all jobs are sacred. doesn't matter what you're doing. You're around unbelievers. I'd rather be around unbelievers all day than and to be at the seminary to be all, all day, to be frank. So I just want you to see that the religious elite were doing the same thing in the first century. They were saying, look, cloister up, um, isolate. That's not biblical, Right? Now, at the same time, I've got 1 John out there, too, that says we're not of this world, right? So you've got to be careful. It doesn't mean you become the world, but you are to rub shoulders with the world so that and for the purpose of evangelism. These religious folks would have rather have these men damned than to have a meal with them. That is horribly wrong. It was a scandal for Jesus to eat with them. In Jesus' mind, it was a scandal not to eat with them. Right? They, they were following Jesus around. They were trying to trip him up. They, they, they thought they caught him. He, 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 he was in error. But the problem is they were blind. They were self-righteous. They were checking the box. They had forgotten. They'd forgotten that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost, right? So separation is not a biblical model. Isolation is not a biblical model. They were to interact. They were to engage. And then you say, well, how do I do that, Dan? Meals, dinner, lunch, breakfast, meals. So the self-righteous religious elite were critical of Jesus, and Jesus ate meals with sinners. It should tell us a whole lot about strategy, right? I think sometimes we have our modern-day Phariseeism at times that even blinds ourselves, right? We... We look at our neighbors and we think, oh, those crazy neighbors. Or we look at a family member and say, oh, a crazy family member. What you learn from Jesus as you walk with him, and that's why we're going through the Gospels, you learn how he interacted with people. He leaned into that. You're going to go to Thanksgiving. Your crazy Uncle Ed's going to be there. It's going to get real funky. It's like any family time. But that's what you lean into, right? That's what we do. It shouldn't cause us to run and to, and to pull back, but rather to, to lean in. Instead of eating dinner with Christians all the time and going to Christian this and Christian basketball leagues and Christian gyms and getting Christian animals, you should, you should consider what Jesus does here. Look what Jesus said in John 17, 15. He said, my prayer is not that you take them out of this world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Doesn't mean it's without challenges, right? But we're not to isolate ourselves and we are not to assimilate into the world. Both are true. You don't isolate and you definitely don't assimilate because of 1 John 2, right? But those guys thought Jesus was out of line. He, they said he crossed the line. And I guarantee they're looking for chapter and verse. I mean, they're going Psalm 1, Psalm 1, oh, 
you know, walking with the ungodly. Look what he's doing. And they're really criticizing. It's so scandalous there in Capernaum that they feel like, and ultimately they're going to use it and call him a glutton, Luke 7, and they're going to use it to crucify him. This, this, some of these very acts that you're, you're seeing, this is an act of hospitality, a kindness to strangers. I'm telling you today that you are most like your Savior when you're, when you're friends with sinners. If they call you a glutton and a liar and you are sinful, then you've earned the label well you did and followed your Savior. We're called to be salt and light. Right? This is amazing. Amazing. We can't afford to get this wrong. I'll be honest. Um, Bullock County, Marion County, Nelson County. It's tough. It's going to take us living in the community and having people over for meals. Because that's the Great Commission, right? It said go to them. It didn't say invite them to church. It said go to them. We're going to have to open our homes. We're going to have to, to have meals with people and, and talk about the gospel, right? We don't want to start sorting the community out with holy and unholy. That's a, that's a false dichotomy, right? We're all sinners. We've all fallen short. We're all objects of, of God's grace. We're all in, in need of God's love. We've all been redemptive. Uh, been redeemed as, as leaders. And so you can see here in verse 16 that the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors and so they called his disciples. They're like chicken little. What a bunch of wimps. They won't even ask Jesus, hey, why are you doing this? They call his, the five out and they say, what's going on here? What the heck is he doing? You don't eat with these kind of people, these scoundrels, these thugs. They're, they're scared to ask the question, Right? Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? But Jesus is omniscient, hears it or overhears it, or just knows in his spirit. And so we're introduced to the third and last dimension. Jesus is a redeemer to the sick. He's a redeemer to the sick. He's an antagonist to the religious elite, right? He's a friend of sinners, and he's a redeemer to the sick. Now look at how he responds in verse 17. I love this. And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, a physician, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, those who think they're okay with God. I came to call sinners. You see, you have to have the bad news before you ever have the good news. You'll never come to Christ unless you know and recognize and admit you're sinful. You're not as sinful as you could be, but by nature and by choice, you are a sinner. And Jesus' response to their question, I'm telling you, is ministry shaping for us as a local church. He said, I didn't come for good people. I came for the bad ones, the really bad ones, the thugs of this world, like Levi. And I'm telling you, once you understand how hated Levi was, and how big a move that was for Jesus to choose him to be on their team. That he was a lost, lost, lost dude. And then he comes to Christ and is redeemed. Jesus literally like turned the tables. He did the opposite of what they would ever expect. Right? He changes. He's the physician. He's the great physician, the scripture says. And he heals 
the brokenhearted. He didn't die for the self-righteous. He didn't die for the dudes wearing the collars and the big hats. He died for sinners, right? He died for dysfunctional people. Died for messed up people. That's who he died for. He's very clear in the text. So let's wrap this up with some practical implications on us. For sure, footnote, God has not called any of you to isolation. You're not to go off the grid. You're not to disappear in Alaska. You're not to fortify. You are to engage the community and engage the culture right where you're at. God has strategically placed. If you just look at everybody in this room, different careers, different jobs. We've got coaches. We've got real estate people. We've got businessmen. We've got every walk of life is represented here. And God has sovereignly placed you in that spot to be light and salt and to be a missionary. If you'll see your Christian life as missionary not going overseas, but missionary right here in Bardstown, Kentucky, or wherever you work, then that will be game-changing. And frankly, it'll make us all dangerous, dangerous in a good way. Because we'll really start living on mission like Jesus. Even though he was accused of hanging out with the wrong crowd, he did it anyway. Jesus didn't spend his life in a monastery. No chance. He's in Capernaum. He's at the beach. Don't even, don't even go there in your thinking. We need to view our neighbors and our coworkers and our family through Jesus' eyes. And we're to reach them for Christ. So practically, you're going to be accused sometimes of yucking it up with the wrong crowd. That's okay. Another practical implication. God has given you a home. Beautiful homes. And I'll tell you, uh, homes in the West here compared to third world countries, and believe me, I'm probably every other month in a third world country. Uh, we are wealthy. Every single one of you extreme wealth compared to other countries, right? But at least God's given you a home. You don't have to have a fancy home to do ministry. You, you can fold out chairs. I don't care. It's not about your home. It's using your home for strangers and for the sake of the gospel. And I'm telling you, you want to double this church next year? It will be because we take this passage dead dog serious. It will be. We need to take advantage of our homes and, and deploy them for the sake of the gospel. You say, how do I do that? 21, you got 21 opportunities next week. 21 meals. Unless you're doing some weird diet and you're skipping a meal. But don't do that. I don't do that. You can tell. But doing lunch is for Jesus doing theology. Doing dinner, have somebody over it. And it starts with your own kids. But invite somebody into the mix, right? And the question you have to ask yourself is, are we willing to cross the tracks and go to the least of these, right? That's what Jesus did. He crossed the tracks. They all said, no, no, you know, holy gospel people stay over here. We do this. They do that. False dichotomy. No, cross the tracks. You go after the funky and the strangers and the weird ones, right? Host a barbecue for unbelievers in your neighborhood, right? Be winsome, but not weird. That's an implication. You have to, I just... You just have to know that Jesus came for losers like us. And that is the strategy. He didn't build a building. He ate meals. This is not that complicated. There's no tricks. There's no crazy stuff going on here. It's just called reaching out to strangers and love of strangers. 
You don't have to have elaborate events. Everything doesn't have to match. You don't have to get all the napkins to have turkeys on them. Just have people over. Coffee. There's all kinds of contexts that they didn't appreciate, didn't appreciate coffee in their culture. But coffee, I mean, you had coffee. I mean, I drink that like water because it has water in it. It's 90% water. And, but I'm just saying, like, you, you, there's just tons of opportunities for the sake of the gospel. You don't have to fly lobster in from Maine to have an evangelistic opportunity. You could. You might. But you don't have to. You can have chicken noodle soup. Right? If we're going to be like Christ, we're going to be indiscriminately opening our homes, loving strangers, and telling people how they can be forgiven of their sins, right? Let's close here with some action. I'm not sure where you're at, what you're thinking. There's a lot going on here. Um, it, this tell, the text actually speaks for itself. I'm just trying to add some, some color to it. But it is crystal clear in my mind that we are to open our homes, we are to eat meals, and we are to do it with sinners, with the craziest people in the world. Because that's what Jesus did, and it, it makes sense to me strategically how that looks, that you, you're going you're gonna to work that out in, in your own home. What I do know is this. If you think isolation is the way of truth, you need to change. You need to repent, and you need to stop the isolationism and the fortification and the monastic kind of go up to whatever Washington County there and go in that monastery, that weird thing about 20 minutes from here and spend a year there. That is not God's will for your life. I can tell you straight up. It's just not. Not going to happen. So stop the isolation. And then I know secondarily, if that you've got figured out, you understand the text, now we've got to go. We can't say, hey, people come to Nelson County on Sunday morning. In Bardstown, it's a tough, it's a tough sell, to be honest. And we're grateful for guests. But honestly, we got to go to them. And most truthfully, it's probably going to come through small groups, through us opening our homes in small groups and inviting people, right? So we need to go and make disciples and be influencers and be contagious and, and winsome with the gospel like Jesus. And then they're going to include, they're going to, they're going to accuse us of, of being a friends with sinners here at our church. And you know what? We'll wear that label with pride. But I'm telling you, if you live like this, you live on mission, right? And Jesus didn't do anything tricky. It was the ordinary means of grace. And that was his ordinary was meals. He ate meals everywhere you look in the Gospels. Now that you've seen this, as you read the Gospels during the week, watch how many times you see him having a meal and sharing the Gospel with people. It's crazy. It's crazy. And as you know, the dinner table or lunch table or coffee shop is a grand place to do ministry for you to freely share the Gospel with no threat of anything, just you sitting there being salt and light. So if you're thinking isolationism, stop. If you're thinking, you know, what could I do? How could I be a better evangelist? Start. Stop that. Start by opening your home and having meals. Some of you can cook the, the heavens down. Just go make a dang casserole. I don't care. All right? It's, do something. But that's how we do it. And we reach people and we reach more people. We reach more people. That is how the kingdom has been built and that is how it will be built. And this is the prime example, what you're seeing here. And you know what it did to the crazy religious people who sat around and didn't want to take any action? It, it, it scared them to death. It drove them batty. He said, I didn't come for you guys. 
I came for people who knew they were sin, sick, Satan serving, out to lunch thugs, a.k.a. Levi. That's who I came for. And that's how you've got to really see yourself when you come as a sinner in need of grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Man, it's good. And what was a scandal uh, to uh, the religious people of the day is a delight to us this morning. Lord, help us see from this text how we can do ministry in the context of our homes and how ordinary it is and really how simple it is that all the stars don't have to align and we don't have to have everything in order and everything perfect and everything put away, but we can open our homes for the sake of the gospel. Help us to do that well as a church. Help us to feel the, the love of that and the passion for that. Give us a passion for our neighbors, for our coworkers. Lord, help us to see people as not as holy and unholy, but, but sinners in need of grace like we once were. And Lord, for those who don't know Christ this morning, I pray that they would fall on the mercies of Christ. They admit that they are a thug. And then they would give their hearts to Christ. And you would take their burden. You'd make their sins, as Daniel read, as, take them away as far as the east is west. And that would be accomplished even this day. Lord, we're thankful that you are a friend of sinners. We're grateful that you are an antagonist to the religious elite. And we're so thankful that you're the great healer and redeemer of the sick. The moral sick. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.